appreciate the enthusiasm with which you help us begin our services. It gets us in a frame of mind of bringing our full energy as we come in to, to praise God and to encourage one another. It's good to see you this morning. I'm, I'm privileged to, to be before you once again uh, this week. I was here last week and had the chance to, uh, uh, to be with you and preach. So some of you may be looking at your bulletins this morning wondering uh, what's going on. I don't look like Jim. And if you look in your bulletins, you see that, that Jim is supposed to be here this morning. Uh, Jim had uh, some, a set of circumstances that required his presence at another congregation this morning. And so he is uh, up in Pompano, uh, working with that congregation on some matters. Um, if you know Jim, you know that he is dedicated to his work and to his commitments. And, and so it's not a trivial matter when, when Jim has to uh, step aside on a, on a day that he is supposed to be here. So I know Jim this morning would covet your prayers as he is uh, working with, with the church in Pompano. So please keep him in your prayers throughout this day and, and that he would have the guidance and wisdom of God as he, he works with that congregation. And this morning we are going to be in John chapter 1. Uh, this week's message kind of flows out of last week's message. We talked about the baptism of Jesus last week. And we talked about how Jesus came to John the Baptist uh, to be baptized under his uh, message of repentance because of the nearness of the kingdom and how Jesus had submitted himself to John, even though Jesus himself was not necessarily in need of a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, but because it fulfilled the righteousness of God, because it helped fulfill John's purpose, Jesus came to him and submitted to his baptism. We're going to look at that in a little bit more detail from, from the gospel writer John's perspective in just a few moments. I'll be turning there, and while you turn there, I have a question for you to think about this morning. Do you have a favorite novel or story uh, that you have read over and over again? Uh, a movie that you, you, every time you see it on TV, you, you stop and watch it. If you, if you do have a story or a movie like that, you know that the first time through the book, the first time through the movie, you're, you're so focused on the big picture of the story that there are minor details that the author or the director includes in the telling of the story that, that may not stand out to you the first time through. But on the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh viewing of a movie or, or book, as you know the big picture, little details begin to jump out at you. Little subtle hints about the big story uh, begin to catch your eye. Uh, for me, the, the story that's like that is the, is the Harry Potter series of books. Um, I'm a big fan of that that series, and... And I've read it several times. And the first time I read it was before my children were born. It came about that Julie was working in a classroom, and a volunteer from a local reading organization came to her classroom to do some work with her. And as part of their work, they left her a copy of the first book from the Harry Potter series. She read it. She enjoyed it. And because she enjoyed it, she started picking up the other books. I sneered at it, to be frank. I thought, that's just children's literature. I don't need to read that. Well, one of the books was coming out, and if you know anything about the Harry Potter books, you know that they were such a big phenomenon that whenever the new books were released, bookstores would have huge events uh, to celebrate the release of these books. And so I went one time with Julie to, to get a new book that was coming out, and I got caught up in the environment, the fun. There were people in costumes, a lot of fun events going on. And so I said, I have to figure out what this phenomenon is all about. And so I started reading the Harry Potter books, and I fell in love with them. And so as each of my boys got old enough for me to read longer books with them, I, I read the entire Harry Potter series with each of them. And, and what I noticed is each time that I read through the same story, new details emerged each time. 
new details came on to take more under more meaning, more understanding. Something subtle in the very first book that you don't notice the first time through suddenly takes on new meaning when you know the totality of the story. I think that's what we have in the Gospel of John. As you know, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the Synoptic Gospels, and they're called the Synoptic Gospels because they generally look very similar to each other. There are some subtle differences. They tell their story a little bit differently. They have a little bit different audience, perhaps. But at the end of the day, those three gospel writers, their telling of the gospel looks pretty much the same. John looks different. John has a different approach to the gospel. What I think is going on in the book of John is John is generally considered the last of the four gospels to be written. I think John is writing his gospel in an environment where the basic story of Jesus is known, both within the church and to a certain extent outside the church. And so John is writing his gospel not to tell the basic story, but to help give some of that added nuance, to give some added understanding, to give some added meaning to the story. Reading John is like reading the gospel for the third or the fourth time, picking up on different nuances. So with that background, let's take a look at John. We're going to actually read a lot of the passage this morning, a lot of the scripture, and talk about it as we go. And I want to start in John 1.1 with this prologue that John gives to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Let's pause there for just a moment. This prologue that the Gospel writer John gives us about Jesus, he is basically telling us what this Gospel is about. This gospel is about a man who was at the same time God and existed from the beginning of time and in fact was the agent through which creation was made, but also someone who dwelled on this earth as a part of that creation. And that person who was both God and man brought grace and truth and light to the world. But the way John does his introduction here, the way he does his prologue, He's intertwining some narrative about this other person named John the Baptist. 
And it's interesting that so much of this introduction to who Jesus is talks about this man, John the Baptist. It is clear that the gospel writer John thinks that John the Baptist is a crucial part of the story of Jesus. But he wants us to know from the very beginning that John the Baptist is not the Christ. John the Baptist is not the Messiah. He is not the one that this gospel is about. He is simply a part of the story. And so he is simply one who gives testimony, who one who testifies that Jesus is the one to come. Now, what I think John wants us to see with this prologue is at the beginning of his gospel, the world is in darkness. The entire world lives in darkness. And Jesus is coming into this world to illuminate it and give it light. Now, John the Baptist is not the light. But as we're going to see in just a moment, he is the first one to recognize this light. And so when we get to verse 18 or verse 19, what I want you to think about is the world being in darkness and light is dawning. And notice what the gospel writer says in verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. To those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So in in the gospel writer John's perspective, at the beginning of this story, nobody recognizes Jesus. Nobody knows who he is. But as this gospel moves forward, slowly, person after person, is going to come to know Jesus. All right, so let's pick it up now in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, some Pharisees had been sent, who had been sent, questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the, throng, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, remember, we talked a little bit about John the Baptist last week. John's baptism, his ministry, is the starting point of Jesus' adult ministry in all four Gospels. All four Gospels locate the public appearance of Jesus through the baptism of John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist came preaching a message. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He talked about what repentance means. He told soldiers not to extort money. He told taxpayers not to take more than the government was owed. He told those who have plenty to give those who did not. And he was preaching a message of repentance. And people were coming to him confessing their sins and being baptized. And what we see is he was attracting large crowds of people. A lot of people were coming to him for this baptism. And so, of course, as this large new religious movement is growing, the religious elites in Jerusalem want to know what this is. They want to know what's going on. So they send a a group of men out. It's made up of priests. We have some Levites. We have some Pharisees. And they come to John the Baptist and they say, who are you? 
They say, are you the Messiah? And John, the gospel writer, is very clear to say, John does not claim for himself any type of messiahship. He says, I am not the Christ. Well, then what are you? Are you a prophet? You know, we're, we're waiting for Moses to come back. Are you him? And he says, I am not the prophet. Well, what about Elijah? We know Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. And, and we've been told that he's going to come back. Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, then tell us, who are you? So notice what John the Baptist is doing. Imagine the temptation that he could feel. He has crowds at his hands and at his feet. They are coming and they are flocking to him. We know he has people called his own disciples. But Jesus, but John the Baptist does not try to start a religious movement for himself. He does not take on any mantle of leadership. He does not take any title that would indicate he thinks that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is not the one that God is sending to redeem the world. And he is clear with the Pharisees and the Levites and the priests, I am not the person that we're waiting for. But when he's asked, who are you? He does associate himself with prophecy. He says, I am the voice crying out in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Now, what do you think it means to prepare the way for the Lord? Now, we, we probably think that means you know, kind of soften things up, get people ready. If, if you ever go to a, a comedy show or a concert, there's always a, a warm-up act. And what's the purpose of the warm-up act? To kind of get people loose, get them ready, get them kind of excited, so that when the, the main performer comes on stage, the energy in the room is already there. The, the enthusiasm is already there. That's not what John the Baptist is. He is not the warm-up act. As we're going to see in just a moment, what it means to prepare the way is John was sent for one very specific thing. And once he recognizes that he has fulfilled that purpose, he is ready to take a step back. And in fact, John here is so humble, he, he even says, there's one among you that you do not yet know. And that goes back to this idea that at the beginning of John's gospel, everybody's in darkness. Nobody knows who this God is yet. He has not been revealed. And this one that is standing amongst you, I only baptize with water, but he is going to do something even greater. In fact, he's so great that I can't even stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. I can't untie his shoes. Now, what does that mean? Several commentators point out that there was a rabbinic saying at the time that said, everything that a servant would do for his master, a disciple will do for his teacher, except untie his shoes. And so some people think that, that John the Baptist kind of has this in the back of his mind. I think John the Gospel writer is also looking forward to what's going to happen at the end of this gospel. At the end of his gospel, Jesus is dining with his disciples at what we call his Last Supper. And at that supper, Jesus takes up a towel and a bowl of water, and he goes around and washes the feet of his disciples. And he tells them, I am your teacher and you are my students, but none of you have done this act for me. Here I am doing it for you. Go and do likewise. I think when John the Baptist reports this statement, or when John the Gospel reports a statement from John the Baptist that I'm not even unworthy to tie his shoes, he's looking forward to the greater humility of Jesus. Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the great one, willing to bend down and untie the shoes of his disciples so that he can perform the act of washing their feet. But here at the beginning, John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy 
to untie the shoes of my master so that I can wash his feet. That's how much greater than me this person is. So pick it up in verse 29 now. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down again from, come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, notice the use of a word here. In verse 19, in verse 19, the Gospel of John says, this is John's testimony. Back in verse 15, he says, John testifies concerning him. Here in verse 32, John gives this testimony. In verse 34, John testifies that this is the Son of God. This is an important theme that unites John's Gospel, this idea of testimony. You'll see this word if you look through the Gospel of John. The idea of testimony, the idea of giving testimony in a courtroom and giving testimony before a judge, giving testimony before a decision maker is a huge part of what is going on in John's gospel. And so John talks about truth and he wants us to know that his testimony can be relied upon, that the testimony that's being presented here is relied upon. And the testimony that John the Baptist gives is this, that he had been told that when he sees the spirit come down and descend upon a man, that that is the man that has been promised. So John the Baptist now declares, I saw the Spirit come down on Jesus. He is the one we've been waiting for. This is John preparing the way. This is John fulfilling the purpose of his ministry. And remember last week when we said that, that Jesus comes and John says, all righteousness has to be fulfilled? I think this is part of that. John had to see the dove descend on Jesus so that John's ministry could be complete. And if Jesus had not been baptized, if John had refused to baptize Jesus, John would have never been, been given this sign. And if John had never been given this sign, John could not have been, point, been able to point to Jesus and say, that's the one. Because it's at this moment in the Gospel of John that the ministry and the focus turn from Jesus, from John the Baptist, to Jesus. So without John being able to testify, the focus never turns to Jesus. Now, the way John makes this testimony, John the Baptist, he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, what do we make of that declaration by John the Baptist? He says, this is the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world. Much has been written by commentators trying to figure out what exactly John is saying here. People search through the Old Testament trying to find a reference to a lamb of God, a reference to a lamb in sin. And what you will find if you do the search yourself is there's no scripture we can point to to say that John the Baptist is quoting this or that. So we have to take a step back and say, why is John the Baptist saying this? Why is John including this in his gospel? And I think this is another one of those moments where John is writing at the end of the story. He knows where this story is going. He knows what the conclusion is. John, the gospel writer, 
is going to present in his later book, the book of Revelation, this picture of the lamb that was slain. This picture of the lamb that is also a lion. This picture of a lamb that has become the king. And I think the phrase lamb of God was already so prevalent amongst the church that John can include John the Baptist phrase here and know that his readers will understand it. Know that the audience will understand just what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God. What about the day that John the Baptist says this? What would he have meant? What would his audience have heard when they hear him say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And I think what John the Baptist is doing is he's summing up a lot of what Israel and Jews would consider familiar. Think of the story in Genesis when Abraham is told to take his son Isaac. Take your beloved son and sacrifice him. And as he's taking Isaac up on a mountain, they have wood, they have fire, they have a knife. And being a very observant child, Isaac says, everything's here, Dad, but the lamb. Where's the lamb? And his father says, God will provide the lamb. And so they come up on the mountain. Isaac is bound, he's tied, he's on the altar. The knife is in Abraham's hand. And at that moment, an angel cries out and says, don't lay a hand on the boy. I know that you trust me now. I know that you will do whatever I command you. And so Abraham does not kill his son. He looks over in the bushes and there's a, not a lamb, but a ram caught in the thicket. Its horns are caught. And so Abraham offers this ram as a burnt offering instead of his son Isaac. And so in that sense, the ram substitutes its life for Isaac's. Isaac is spared Because the ram is sacrificed. But notice there is nothing in this sacrifice tied to sin. God simply says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham is willing to do it. So if it's not necessarily Abraham, maybe it's the Passover. In the Passover, when God is striving with Pharaoh to have his people released from captivity, he is pouring down plagues upon the Egyptians. But Pharaoh is still not willing to let his people go. So finally, we come to the tenth and final plague, where God says, I want you Israelites, I want you to take a lamb, I want you to sacrifice it, and I want you to take the blood of that lamb and wipe it on your doorpost. And I'm going to send the angel, the angel of death, through this nation. And every home that does not have this blood on its doorpost, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every family that's in that house. And so the Israelites go through this, this ceremony, through this night, it's a terrible night for the Egyptians because they've not been given this instruction. They've been not been given this way to prevent the death of their firstborn children. And Israel is set free. And so maybe this is what John the Baptist is talking about. So again, we have a lamb taking the place of a firstborn son, killing the lamb so that the firstborn son will live. But again, we're missing the sin component here. Well, maybe John the Baptist has the entire sacrificial system in mind. You know, there are sacrifices for sins. But if you go through the book of Leviticus, if you go through the Old Testament, you don't really ever see a lamb associated with a sin sacrifice. Usually when you see a lamb, it's what's called a burnt offering. The entire offering is burned up. It's used up as a, as a sign of trust, as a sign of I'm going to give to God the best of my flock in trust that he will take care of me. But, but again, you don't see sin tied to it. Some have suggested that all sacrifices in the Levitical system have an element of atonement to them. So it's really hard to put what John the Baptist says about the Lamb of God with the cleansing and the taking away of sins. So I think the only way we can understand it is that 
John, the gospel writer, is writing when we already understand what Jesus has done. We already know that Jesus has offered his life. We already know that he has been killed and raised again and that he is sitting at the right hand of his father. And only with that afterthought can we put together the idea of a lamb taking away the sins of the world. But not just the sin, the use of the image of a lamb. What kind of an animal is a lamb? Lambs are cute. Lambs are cuddly. Lambs are docile creatures. We don't think of a lamb as being a powerful creature. If you're thinking of an animal to symbolize a powerful new leader, what animal are you going to think about? A lion, a stallion, a big, bold animal, a beast. Jesus is presented as a lamb. Jesus is presented as one who willingly goes into sacrifice. He'll later say in John's gospel, you don't take my life from me. I lay it down willingly. So I think in that, John's giving us a foreshadowing of how the death of Jesus is going to become about. He's going to be doing this as a willing participant in this sacrifice. And one last thing I want you to notice about this particular set of verses here. Notice what John says in verse 33. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize told me, when you see this, you will know it's him. That's why I say at the very beginning of the narrative section of John's gospel, nobody knows who Jesus is. Everybody is in darkness, even John the Baptist. And only when John the Baptist sees that sign is he able to have the illuminated for him who this word is, who this logos coming from God is. And it's his recognition that starts the recognition throughout the rest of this gospel. All right, let's read one last set of verses together. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is, when translated is Peter. So the very next day, John is with two of his own disciples. He points at Jesus and says, there's the Lamb of God. There's that phrase, Lamb of God, again. And how do his two disciples respond? They immediately begin to follow Jesus. I, I think that John the Baptist has been preparing his own disciples for this moment. He's been telling them, that it's been revealed to me that when a certain thing occurs, I will know who the Messiah is. And so once I'm able to identify him, you're to go follow him. Now, these two disciples do that. What I have to reconcile is John continues to have his own disciples after this moment. So maybe there are disciples of his who didn't fully pick up the message. Maybe they wanted to remain loyal to John the Baptist. I don't know. But these two disciples, as soon as they see that John says, this is the Lamb of God, they are no longer John's disciples. They move their loyalty over to Jesus. And begin to follow him. And they approach Jesus and he says, what do you want? 
and that that phrase doesn't really capture the language that, that that's used in the in, in the Greek. What he's really asking is, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? What are you trying to find? These are disciples. They are looking for something. They, they've attached themselves to John the Baptist because they're looking for something new. They're looking for something different. They're not finding it in the religious elite of the day. And now that they've been told Jesus is the Lamb of God, they're after, they're after him. They're looking for something. And so Jesus doesn't say, who are you? Jesus doesn't say, why are you following me? He just says, what are you looking for? And they don't know what to say. So they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus' response is, come and see. And I think there's more in that phrase than simply, come look at where I'm staying. Jesus is inviting them to come follow me, come see what I'm doing, and see if I have what it is you're looking for. See if in me your desires will be satisfied. Come see if I hold the hope that you're looking for. And so they spend the rest of the day with him, and something about that day convinces Andrew that we've found the Messiah. So the very next thing that Andrew does, he goes and finds his brother and says, you've got to see this. We found the Messiah. And they bring Peter to Jesus, and Jesus takes one look at him and says, you're going to be called a rock. You're going to be a foundation. You're no longer going to be the one who doubts. You're no longer going to be the one who struggles. You are going to be a rock. You're going to be something special. Jesus looks at him from this very moment and sees not the man who he is in this moment. He sees the man who's going to become. He sees what he is capable of once Jesus gets a hold of him and chisels him and polishes him. And so as we look at this story, what we try to do is we try to figure out where are we in this story? Who do I identify with when I, when I read the scripture? How, how do I know what this means to me? How do I know what this means to you? I'm clearly not Jesus. Like John the Baptist, I say, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. So we, we can rule him out. I'm not John the Baptist either. I haven't been given a special revelation. I haven't been told you're the one that's going to announce who Jesus is. The best place I can find myself is with one of these disciples. Somebody who's been told by Jesus, come and see. What are you looking for? Maybe you'll find it in me. And I think this idea of testimony that, that runs throughout John's gospel helps us understand our role, not only in this particular story, but our role in, in the story of Jesus. And we are nothing more than people who can give testimony. We are nothing more than people who can say what we have seen. Now, this word testimony has an interesting uh, background to it. The Greek word for the word testimony is also the word where we get the word martyr. Right? So when someone is a martyr, what they have done is they have simply given their life to testify to what they know to be true. So John the Baptist is a martyr. The rest of the disciples, when they go through and testify as to what they've seen, they become martyrs. So when I think, what can I learn from this passage, what I want to think about is, how can I be a better witness? How can I be, if, if you'll excuse me, a better martyr? Not that I'm willing and ready to die to, to this moment, willing, wanting to be killed, but how can I be willing to testify? How can I be willing to tell Jesus, tell others what Jesus has done for me? So the first thing I want to notice is that being a good witness for Jesus begins in self-denial. John the Baptist knew who he was, 
and he knew who he wasn't. He knew that he was not the promised one. He knew that he was not going to fulfill the role of being the Messiah. He knew that he was not the one that was going to redeem Israel. What he did know is that he was a voice. What he did know is that he was going to see who Jesus was and be able to testify to that. But when I say that being a witness is rooted in self-denial, I don't mean that it's some sort of self-hatred, some sort of self-deprecation. It's related, it's self-denial in reference to someone else. John the Baptist knows he's not the Messiah because Jesus is. John the Baptist knows he is not the one to fulfill prophecy because Jesus is. In the same way, I, am, I know that I am weak because Jesus is strong. In the same way, I know that I am redeemed because Jesus has died and risen for me. I know who I am and I know who I'm not because of who Jesus is. And so being a martyr, being a witness is rooted in self-denial. And then flowing out of that denial, self-denial, being a witness is pointing to Jesus. So John the Baptist knows who he is, and once he knows who Jesus is, he immediately points his disciples to him. So pointing others to Jesus is part of being a witness. Being able to say, that is the Lamb of God. That is the one I've been waiting for. That is the one who has done all these things for me. And the very first result of this testimony is that John loses his own disciples. He's not, willing, he's, he's not trying to hold his own disciples to him. He's willing to lose whatever he has to lose in order for Jesus to take his place as the Messiah, in order for him to take over and take over this ministry. And then last, to be a good witness, to be a good martyr, we have to bring others along with us. When Andrew becomes a follower of Jesus, when he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, his first response is to find his brother and to say, come with me on this journey. I'm following Jesus now. Will you follow him with me too? And Jesus, when he sees Peter, says, come follow me. You're going to become a fisher of men. You're going to become Peter. You're going to become Cephas. You're going to become this rock on which I will build my church. And so the challenge for us as Christians today, the challenge for us as the church is to become better witnesses, to become better at telling our story, to become better at pointing to Jesus, and to become better at bringing people along with us. If there's any way we can help you today, if you would like to study more about this, if you are ready to put Jesus on in baptism and become a witness yourself, we invite you to come. We invite you to come. Let us pray for you. One of our elders will be here. Jeff will be here waiting for you. Please come share with us your needs, and we'll be able to walk, be glad to walk beside you and pray with you.